welcome to all new arrivals on Ile de Besançon. Could Monty Moncrief please make his way to the customs desk immediately? Welcome. Ellie here again. Once more we're on the beautiful Ile de Besançon and somehow it is still early May. The sun shines through the dappled palm tree leaves. We're at an unspecified latitude and coffee and local beverages are free and plentiful. The only thing that's in short supply is Eurovision records because everyone who comes here is only allowed eight past the customs desk and they've got to argue their case for each record with me, the customs officer. Also, for reasons to do with Sue Lawley, I can also offer everybody a Eurovision luxury of their choice. And unlike other castaway destinations, we don't give you the Bible and Shakespeare. We give you Waterloo and Valare, which at least have bits you can hum. I've got a castaway now approaching the customs desk. Who are you? Well, hello, uh, I'm Monty Moncrief. I think you're what we call a friend of the parish. I am indeed a very friendly with the parishioners. <laughs> the ESC inside. The ESC inside parishioners, yes. And you are sort of a Eurovision stalwart? I guess you could say that. I think when you get to a certain age, past 45, which I am, uh, then yes, I think that's when the stalwart uh, nickname comes in. Legend? Uh, I'd like to think so, but I'm not quite sure I'm quite there yet. Shall we get to the formalities of your customs form then? Indeed, yes. I'm very pleased to have been granted my visa and been given the opportunity to enter the island. Did you enjoy the seaplane? I mean, it's a bit of a paddle from the sort of the landing strip. Which yes, is it was a bit of a challenge. It's a bit like the under, Krypton factor. Submerged under two feet of water, then you've got to pull yourself up onto the jetty and then, uh, then you're here. It's lucky I'm a hardy perennial. <laughs> So your first record is Asa Cleveland's Norway 1966 hit, So Monty, tell us about your relationship with this record. Well, this song is my favourite all-time Eurovision song, and I know that this has actually already been uh, chosen for the Ile de Besançon. I think John Paul yes, uh, John chose Paul had this, it. but I had to put it in. I just had to make the case for it to, to be accepted for a second time. There's just something about this song that I absolutely love, the kind of the funkiness of it, the, the unexpectedness of it, I think, of something coming from Eurovision 
television in the 60s. Um, and I, it just feels like it sort of stood the test of time. I think the 1966 is probably my favourite year at Eurovision, um, which I think will probably surprise a lot of people, you know, most people having come to the, the contest much later than that. And it's also, you know, it's from Eurovision before I was even born. But I just think it, it sort of, it, it characterises a time when the contest was sort of changing from its first um, formation where the songs were kind of, you know, quite formulaic and it started to get that kind of funkiness of the mid-60s. So you had songs like this, you had songs like the Swedish song that year, which was kind of sort of little jazzy number and you had songs like Millie Scott from the, the Netherlands just really bringing, you know, sort of ringing in the changes. I think we'd seen it a couple of years before um, when France Gall had won um, with Prepedis we had Serge Gainsbourg and the sort of the coolness that he represented coming into Eurovision. But I think 1966 for me started to just change all of that a little bit. And it's just such a, a delight of a year. Yeah, Eurovision has never been sort of hermetically sealed from the wider <laughs> musical world. It, mm. Things have always seeped in and seeped back out mm. into the mainstream pop world. Sometimes they've seeped into Eurovision a little later than they've hit their peak in the mainstream pop world. Sometimes we are a little bit behind the curve. Yeah, it took Finland to bring reggae to Eurovision, I believe. <laughs> Which is sort of quite unlikely. Years. Yeah. So... This one with its sort of take five rhythm and mm -hmm. its cool mid-60s jazz overtones. But there was also, the song sort of stands without that production as well. The 66, the Norwegian final was a, a sort of strange format where there were two versions of each of the song performed. And there was a much more laid back version of the song performed without sort of the orchestra. Um, so I think it was quite interesting to get the contrast and see that the song in itself lends itself to, to various styles of, um, uh, of production. But um, I, I also, one of the, the things that happened in 1966 uh, during the voting was there was a, a bit of a love-in between the Nordic countries and all voting for one another under the format they had there. And you can hear booing from the audience. And I think it's the sort of the first Eurovision time. audiences don't boo. <laughs> I think it's the first time that sort of, you know, we saw that kind of uh, neighbourly exchange of voting. That, of course, you know, is you know, much bemoaned today, but it, it, it's really nothing new. It has its origins, uh, you know, way back um, into the 60s and there. But, um, yeah, I just think it's it, it was such a, a great year. Also, we had, I mean, Millie Scott from the Netherlands was the first black performer as well in Eurovision that year. So it felt like it was kind of sort of, you know, um, breaking new ground a bit. And there's just that delightful performance of Millie Scott where she runs down the stairs, sings her little song, and then runs back off the up the stairs again. It's just, it, it's something quite cosy that we don't get in Eurovision now with all the sort of the big production. Um, but even though it, it's quite retro to look at it, contemporaneously, it was breaking new ground, I feel, at the time. So that's why I want to get this song accepted for a second time. It is a sufficiently mysterious and interesting groove, and your story is sufficiently different to John Paul's that 
I think we can have this. Fabulous. Also, so you would recommend that anybody who isn't hasn't fully caught up with their classic Eurovision viewing have a go at the 1966 contest then? Absolutely. I think it's sort of, you know, it, it's really quite surprising with the, the content of some of the songs and the, the style and the variety. Obviously, it's, uh, it's a challenge for some modern viewers because it's, you know, much more static camera angles and it was one of the contests that was broadcast only in black and white um, but it is it's it's a contest that really kind of you know yields rewards if you if you put the effort into it excellent we'll move on to your second record this is spain's 2003 song dime by beth let's take a listen Okay, Dime. Dime, indeed. Now, this is this is actually my second favourite Eurovision song of all time. But I'm not just going through a list from for, for, of, uh, in chronological order. Are you telling a story? I'm. I'm. Well, I'm telling a little bit of a story. A bit of a theme emerged actually when I was putting these together. A theme that I hadn't intended. But all of the songs I've chosen are songs which were sung not in the English language. Oh and yeah. So there's something about language at Eurovision for me that I love. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. I just, in terms of the song itself, what it represents for me is just that killer pop song. There's something about this song that is just perfect, perfect pop for me. Uh, and the fact that it's sort of, you know, got that Spanish flavour to it, that kind of sort of whiff of the exotic to the, you know, to the English ear, and the um, the sort of the, the, the different language just really appeals to me. Um, so it's a kind of a bit of a plea for pop music in general at Eurovision, that kind of really killer pop track that just ticks all the boxes. But the language aspect, for me, one of the really thrilling things of Eurovision as I was growing up was listening to things in different languages and the voting done in a dual language um, system. So it was the way that I learned all of the country names in French and learnt my numbers before I even went to, to school and started learning French at school and I remember you know, knowing that I was going to go into my middle school and start learning French and being so excited at the opportunity to learn a language and that sort of stayed with me I mean I don't speak any languages you know hugely well anymore but I speak a little bit of, of many bits of languages and I really love learning them and so language for me at Eurovision is something that I, I miss the national language I, I totally understand why some countries with less accessible language would prefer to sing in English or another more accessible European language. Um, and I, I think in some ways that sort of added to the diversity of um, countries that are being successful at Eurovision. But I do miss the, the fact that people have to sing in a native language because I think the, lingua, the language diversity that that brought to the show was just a real thrill. I think it might naturally bounce back a little bit. But, you know, there are... 
some languages and some genres do seem to match up really nicely, like uh, like Hebrew and a massive ballad. Yes. Um, or Finnish and metal. <laughs> yes, the only place that Finnish metal is going to do well is probably in Eurovision. So, no, Finnish language metal is extremely popular. Is it mainly in Finland? And mainly in Finland, yes. Um, but I don't know. There's just there's something about the the the, the that diversity. It just it really it was such a thrill, you know, and. Yes, I think, you know, it was a little bit unfair, I think. You know, you could see it in the results of the UK with our, you know, how many times we finished second. I think, you know, our results are sort of artificially inflated by the fact that we were singing in a language that more people understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the, the UK's results since the free language rule um, are not as, not only to do with the quality of the entries that we've submitted, but also to do with the fact that we've lost that, that advantage advantage of um, being one of the few countries singing in a widely understood language. Um, so I would like to I, see more, more language diversity at Eurovision, but I'm not necessarily advocating a return to the, 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 the strict rules about it. Yeah, just sort of a soft encouragement rather yes, than a yes, rule. Yes, and more pop, more pop music like this. Um, it, it was a bit of a shame on the night because I'd been so excited about the song in the build-up to it. And when she when she came to perform it, and we realised that she couldn't actually sing and dance it at the same time, and it was a bit of a mess on stage. It didn't really work as you were hoping it would. Um, but it, just to have that kind of when, you know, it's songs that don't do as well as you want them to. People can get very disappointed about them. But I think, you know, we always have those songs. We always have them for that moment that we want to play them on the dance floor. We can always enjoy them uh, as Eurovision fans sort of after the event. So it, 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 I, it, I'm not so disappointed that it didn't win, which I wanted it to do. But, we, you know, it's still there. It's still a killer dance floor filler for me. Yeah, yeah. If if you don't feel like your chosen song has got justice in any particular year, you do feel gutted. But nobody's deleted the song. Exactly. It's, it's still exactly. there. You, yeah. Your feelings towards it haven't changed. Mm. It's just that they weren't shared by the majority of the voting public or the juries. The fools. <laughs> You're just cooler and more exclusive. That's what's happened. So you can have, Dime, accepted. Gracias. Your third record, we're going to Sweden. It's 1998. It's Jill Johnson and it's Kalekan R. I 
appreciative nods all round mm -hmm. for this one, Monty. Yes. Would you like to tell yes. us your story? I w well, this, again, it has a language connection for me. It's the song that made me want to learn a little bit of Swedish. I loved the sound of the Swedish language in this song. And it was the first time I'd sort of, I downloaded the lyrics and, you know, the very, you know, infancy of the uh, internet and I'd learned them and I'd learned how to pronounce them and I was practicing. Um, and I used to run a pub at the time and um, we had some, there were three young Swedish women who were um, on a study placement used to come into the pub and we used to I used to practice my Swedish language on them and I used to sing the lyrics to various Eurovision songs that I'd learned and they would indulge me and uh, encourage me but it was it was one of those things it was the first time that a Eurovision song made me want to learn a new language and it was actually a few years later that I went and did an evening course in Swedish just to get a bit of the basics but also, this represents to me the, the, the glory that is Melody Festivalen. So 1998 was the second year that I'd watched Melody Festivalen. The first year was 97. And I had a friend in Sweden who would send me over the, a videotape of the show. And she'd send an envelope of lots of press cuttings as well, with a big instruction, don't open these because they'll give away the result. Watch the video first. And it was the first time I'd seen any national final other than the UK selection. And that, of course, triggered a, a sort of an interest which has grown. I think, you know, Melody Festival, and for many um, fans, is kind of almost the jewel in the crown of, the, um, of the, the selection process because it's such a big show and it's such big production values. And because of the place it kind of holds in Swedish popular culture and being such a popular TV show. And I know that it's not necessarily the best music of the national finals. You know, there are some much more interesting things happening in other national finals. But this was the gateway for me into the national final world. Uh, and of course, now you know things have become much e much more accessible we can follow them all online as they're happening but it, back at the time you felt really special if you had access to another country's selection show and I think that interest in national finals and the way that you also got to hear the other songs which were also rans sparked that interest in those second chance events and so the the fan clubs have run them and also friends of mine uh, we set up a, a second uh, chance um, party which we called second cherry second bite of the cherry um, and we for, for 10 years we we did parties where we would invite our guests and show the videos and our guests would form the voting audience we'd host these at a pub in london and it would be a kind of a, a really geek-tastic um a, a way of sort of sealing that season's events by reviewing some of the songs uh, ahead of the new season of national finals starting. Um, we Filling that summer dead zone. Yes, well we sort of select the songs over the summer and then have the party in the autumn and I think you know the, it's, it's, a, it's a really niche thing to do but you know with a room full of Eurovision fans people just so appreciate it um, and it's been a real delight kind of you know as we've 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 use that as a way of exploring some of the national finals so for me that song is not only the it was a great song that year in, in 1998 which was also the first year I ever went to any 
Eurovision event. I went to the uh, semi-final in um, in Birmingham. Um, so not semi, the, the dress rehearsal in Birmingham, and um, it was just opened up so many new things for me. You know, from the Swedish to the Melody Festival to all of the national finals. It just you know was that kind of catalyst song. It felt like for so many other fantastic Eurovision experiences. Eurovision, connecting people. <laughs> Building bridges. Building bridges. Join us. Come together. <laughs> um, accepted. Yay. Your fourth record is France's 1991 entry by Amina. It's C'est le dernier Oh, I mean, who doesn't love this song? It's just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. Um, it's sort of, it's different, it's evocative, it's sensual, it's just, oh, and it was robbed. It was absolutely robbed. And I think, you know, not only does this stand on its own as a song for me, it's emblematic of what I would call the rum lock of the French at Eurovision. So the fact that this joint had scored the same number of points as Sweden but lost on the background is one of the great miscarriages of justice at Eurovision for me. I still haven't quite forgiven Carola for winning. Um, I don't really like Von Gerav and Stormwind um, as a winner. I, I, I like it probably better than I like um, uh, Take Me To Your Heaven from Sweden. But for me... Carola just spoiled one of the, the great moments of Eurovision, which would have been this song winning. I know for many people Carola's victory is one of like the you know the, the, the pinnacles of their Eurovision experience. But for me this really, really spoiled the party. If we were gonna put you in a Eurovision tribe, you're slightly more team team ballad than team banger, aren't you? Not normally, actually. Okay. I'm actually more team banger than I am team ballad. But um, I just, there's something about this, this we're, we're song getting, we're against getting, that banger. <laughs> we're getting Il de Besançon team ballad, team banger t-shirts made up, aren't we? <laughs> But this is, uh, this is also, you know, it's from a year, 1991 was the first year I really became a huge Eurovision fan. So I'd always liked the contest and I'd watched it as a kid and, um, you know, but I, it was something I just did as a sort of a, as a one-off event uh, once a year. And then this year was the first year that I'd met another Eurovision friend and... Um, I'd, um, we'd, we'd had a Eurovision party together and it was the first year that we, you know, for many, many years we continued to have Eurovision parties together and, uh, you know, now we go to Eurovision together as well and um, it sort of, it, it, it cements that kind of crystallisation of becoming a, a proper fan that year. It was the first year I'd recorded it, watched it, you know, time and again, the first year I'd watched the previews before the event and it just had huge meaning for me that year as a, as a Eurovision fan.
Accepted. <laughs> Moving on to your fifth record, would you like to introduce this one, Monty? Yes, it's um, Emis Forame Tohimona Anixiatica, uh, Greece 1996 by Mariana Efstratiu. <laughs> go Monty. Yes, I love this song. It's just one of those fantastic Greek pop songs. Uh, it's one of my favourite Greek songs from Eurovision. But although it was the entry in 1996, the symbolism it has to me is more connected to a decade later when Greece hosted the contest for the first time. I was going to say, because if you were going to pick a big Greek banger, this isn't the first one most people would go for. No, um, but I just quite like the... I mean, there's something about the sound of it, there's something about the language of it, there's something, there was something about the presentation. She had this boy flouncing around um, behind her in some um, little see-through blouse thing, but that isn't the reason I liked it. There's something about her as a performer that I really like. And when I went to Eurovision for the first time, when they hosted in, 90, in 2006, the first night out there in the fan cafe she was the first performer I saw and she sang this song and I just felt so overjoyed to hear this song that I loved as the first song I heard by a Eurovision performer at my first Eurovision and it was just that that thing of like oh my god I have arrived Do this you know, is I can imagine your little face <laughs> it was a picture and she was so delightful and actually you know the the week in Athens was amazing you know we we had no accreditation but we we snuck our way into just about everything you know we we got into the opening party by waving some mobile phone advert that was on a lanyard around our neck and sneaking in around the back of a, a, a fence and we got into the euro club and the, the euro club was it's so infamous that year because they they hadn't applied for the drinks license and so they had to give tokens and you had to go and sweet talk some boy on the door who had the drinks tokens who was a bit prissy if you wanted another drink too quickly but the whole experience was just a joy the whole week there and after the show when we came out of the arena on the Saturday night Mariana was outside the arena and there was all this music playing uh, just outside the arena and we started dancing together and we hugged and we just had this amazing moment together she re she recognized me from the, the the week before when she'd been performing because uh, I'd spoken to her afterwards and it was just one of those incredible moments where everything about that you love about Eurovision all comes together in that just special moment. And that song for me is always associated with that moment. A little bit of Eurovision magic. You Absolutely. Were, you were hit by a, a gleam from the mirror ball. <laughs> just pure, pure joy. And that is what Eurovision means to me. Those kind of like amazing moments that you spend um, with people just indulging yourself in the thing that you watched on TV as a kid and you're there and, you know, I'll never, ever tire of that joy, I don't think. It is, it is all about joy. We will accept. Yay! Your, we will accept your beautiful moment with Mariana. 
your sixth record is another team banger classic. It's Israel's 1998 winner, Dana International with Diva. Other than you yourself being a diva, what's your connection to this song? Well, it was just uh, such an iconic winner. I think every so often a Eurovision winner comes along that the contest needs. It has that kind of much broader impact on, on culture, um, and this was one of those. So it's, a, it's one of those amazing songs. I remember after it won, I used to go out every week to the GAY nightclub in London, and we'd stand on the balcony, we'd, we'd stand on the seats, and we'd vogue to it, throwing all of our, our shapes, and it was just a joy. And then Dana herself came to perform at the GAY club, and I was in my element. And there was, they'd announced there was going to be three prizes, three signed Dada International CDs that you could win. And the prize would be written on a piece of paper, tucked in a balloon, inflated and let down at some point. So we had to grab the balloons, burst the balloons and take the piece of paper from, from inside. This sounds like a terrible way to run a competition. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're there and the balloons descended and I saw this huge balloon with a bit of paper inside and I leapt up to grab it and I burst it. The piece of paper went pinging off. So I was scattering around between people's to collect it and I finally got this piece of paper and I thought fantastic I've won a Dada International CD and I unfolded it and written on the piece of paper was congratulations you've won a Gloria Estefan key ring yes I was so deflated but there's just something about this song for me it also symbolises the LGBT interest in Eurovision Dana was a trailblazer as as an openly trans woman winning the contest and while Eurovision is clearly not an LGBT event. It is a kind of sort of prism in which LGBT issues have been brought into focus in recent years. And I think it's not just the campness and the frivolity that attracts an LGBT audience. It's that we see ourselves there. We're centre stage. We're on. We're, we're part of the contest. We're winning the contest. Even as far back as 1961, the winning song was a coded reference to same-sex love, Nous les amoureux. So we've been in, in the contest in that kind of, you know, the way that we've been as part of culture for such a long time. And I think nowadays when we've been taken to countries that have questionable human rights um, uh, records, Eurovision's been a prism in which people can campaign and throw light and focus and attention on that. And I think it's just a, a, a for me, because I my day job is managing an LGBT charity, I have such an interest in the, the role that Eurovision plays in sort of bringing interest in LGBT issues together. And it was, it's not just the sort of the presence of uh, Dana herself, it's, it's the, the song is a very specifically gay song. And this was just when you were starting to see the audience and actually see who's going to Eurovision. Um, so it is, it's sort of the start of an era. 
Yes, and it's kind of sort of, it is that kind of anthemic song. And it's about kind of, it's about empowerment and it's about kind of presence and it's about, it's about celebrating that kind of diversity. I am, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's one of those songs that is such an iconic winner. So it was a no-brainer for me to put in. Of course. Of course you can have Diva. I think we've got two copies of it now. Moving on now to Fiumi di Parole by Jalice from Italy, 1997. explain well it's kind of the glory of italy really um it was the sort of it was the the last year before they took a very prolonged hiatus and it was such a beautiful song uh, and achieved such a good result for them and it was such a shame to see them go after that um and it's been such a joy to have them back i think they've come back with such strong entries um you know, Sam Raimo obviously is the you know the precursor um, of Eurovision, and there's there's a joy in watching San Raimo. There's a there's a chore in watching San Raimo as well. It drags on and on and on. But there's something about the quality of having that orchestra there, and the quality of sort of Italian song song craft, um, and something about the the Italian songbook that's just very very engaging. It's also just very glamorous absolutely it's like for all of the slickness and sort of cool that modern eurovision has it can't really compete with san remo for just sort of hard glamour yeah absolutely and it's kind of sort of glamour in a in a slightly sort of old-fashioned way i think as well because you know the orchestra isn't really a modern thing uh, in pop music and the you know it's in a sort of it's in the same theater it's been in for so many years and it's you know it is a it is a a, a, a sort of a chore to sit through at times but there is something fantastically glamorous about it i think that we, we are you know, we, we've said for the last few years, Italy's due a win. And I think, you know, this year, obviously, the, the hype around Francesca Gabbani, uh, which to me is the best song this year by a mile, um, it didn't quite recreate the San Remo magic at Eurovision, which was a, a great shame. But there's something about the, the quality of their, their entry since they've returned that made me think we're definitely going to be heading to, to Italy soon for a contest. God help us if it's anything like the 1991 contest with uh, Toto Caccinio and Giulia Leggenquetti. But they are zeroing <laughs> in on something. Absolutely. They've just got, they, they need to find a way to lose that 30 seconds without losing the structure of the song mm -hmm. and translating the 
the the glamour and glitz of those smaller orchestra performances to the big stage at Eurovision. Yeah, and I think that was something which was missing this year, that the way they had to truncate the song really it just it disrupted the flow of the song from the full version, and the camera angles just didn't quite capture it the same way as as Sam Raimo did. I think you know the orchestra with the sort of olés from the the strings players was um, just. You know, an amazing moment. We, we could allay from the uh, crowd all we wanted, but... Absolutely. Didn't have the same impact. No. So, of course, yes, you can have Fiumi di Parole. And finally, we're going to Portugal, like everybody's going to Portugal. And there's a song which I think there's been a bit of a sort of a resurgence of interest in. It's Todas Arroz do Amor by Flor de Lis. So that was a lovely bit of Portuguese gorgeousness. Oh, such gorgeousness. I just adore that song. It's just got everything, you know, that you want that's Portuguese. And it, it it's just again emblematic for me of the pluck of the Portuguese you know they've just kept going at this contest for so many years with no chance of winning until lo and behold they finally won it turns out that just keeping on doing what you were doing absolutely who would have thought it it's just I mean it's an absolute joy for Portugal to have won this year and going to Lisbon my favourite city in Europe I I was there this year for the Festival de Cansal and we were walking around Lisbon and it was gorgeously sunny even in March and we were just saying this city would be the perfect host for Eurovision. And then, of course, we followed it up with, but it's never going to happen. And then it did. We're all going there next year. And I couldn't be more excited. I I think there's just... You know, when I first went to, to Lisbon, there was something about it. Within 24 hours, I'd fallen in love. But I also fully understood why they'd never done well at Eurovision. Because there's something about the culture that really does place them sort of on the edge of Europe. It's lovely, but it's not the kind of thing that's sort of, you know, mainstream European culture. And I think that's sort of been echoed in their their entries through the years. They've been doggedly Portuguese in what they've sent. And finally, that's paid off. And just what a treat. Well, like we were just talking about Italy. They are continuing to be doggedly Italian yes. about their selection. Yeah. And eventually it will pay off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, continuing the theme of language, I have started to learn some Portuguese ahead of going to Lisbon uh, next year. So, again, it's another way that Eurovision and the language of Eurovision has sort of seeped into my, my, my other interests. I was just going to say something in Portuguese, but I'm afraid it's all gone totally out of my head. Oh, well, I've, I'm only on week four, so I'm, I'm not very very proficient at the moment, but I can, uh, I can order mais dois caipirinhas, por favor. <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Bom dia. Bom dia, tudo bem. 
why this specific song from Portugal? Is it just because of its general gorgeousness? I mean, I know a lot of people have been sort of reappraising the Portuguese back mm -hmm. catalogue this year, mm -hmm. probably uh, in a view to trying to predict some interval acts, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, but why this and not like Senhora de Mar or Well, Senhora like de Mar would be up there as well. I mean, I think this is just, it has a, uh, this has unbridled joy. The performance of it was so colourful and so happy um, that it just, it can't fail but to, you know, to just set your heart alight. There's something just so lovely about this. I mean, Senhora de Mar is a great song, but it's that kind of like that darkness of the Portuguese. So this is that kind of happiness, that celebrating life, that kind of, you know, that joy that runs through the Portuguese culture. And that's just something which is, you know, which is, that's why this song for me. Well, I'm not going to turn down Flor de Lis. So there you go. All of your eight records are through. Hurrah. Would you like to import a luxury to Ilde Besançon? Well, I have a luxury that I would like to request uh, importation rights for. Um, and it's it, it's something which it's kind of it exists, but it doesn't exist, if you know what I mean. Oh, be specific. <laughs> what I would like is um, perpetual accreditation to the Euro Club. Well, we do have a sister branch of Euroclub on Besançon. Oh, it's, where, it's where we've put the Swedish tent. Aha! <laughs> if you were wondering what happened to, to that lovely tent. Dismantled just from a, Stockholm. Yeah, dismantled <laughs> from Stockholm, reassembled on Ilde Besançon, uh, but with Kiev drink prices. Oh my God, how amazing would that be? There's just something about going to the Euroclub for me. I, it's such a privilege to get access to it. And for me, the beauty of Eurovision, apart from the, 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 the songs and the event, is the social aspect, the being there with friends. And you go and you go to Euroclub and it's like a night out with 200 friends. And it's just, there's something just so amazing about sharing those moments with with people that's why for me this would be my ultimate luxury and i think it's something that you only really get at eurovision like other sort of well maybe at the olympics as well but i can't imagine the united nations after parties are quite, quite so, so raucous <laughs> no well i don't know who knows <laughs> but we know that the olympics after parties are pretty wild. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, sure. Would you, well, I'm not going to ask you to manage our Euro Club, but would you just like to sort of be the man about you know, Oh, I could the man about the it. tent. Yeah, absolutely. I pop behind the bar, I pop up on stage. Yeah, you can be, uh, you can be the I main can host. I the music policy. Yeah, you can be the main host of Yay. Ile de Besançon's offshoot Euro Club. Oh, what a joy. What a treat. Fabulous. We're filling this island up. We're going to need a bigger island. Are there any of your records that you'd like to give the traditional douze poids to before we let you... Oh, gosh. Well, it has to be the one that's my favourite Eurovision song of all time. And that was the first one. So, Intertenit under Sulen by Orsha Cleveland. Just an astonishing song. I love it so much. Sadly, it will clear the floor at Euroclub. Yeah, but, you know, I can have it in my little Euroclub in my head. <laughs> 
Okay. Thank you so much for being cast away with us, Monty. Thank you for what having me. What would you me. like to plug before we uh, say goodbye? Well, um, I, I guess I plug the little blog that I write for seasonally, um, which is on Europe. So I'm very uh, honoured that uh, Phil, who runs on Europe, has, uh, has allowed me to, to blog about my Eurovision experiences of going there and uh, the from the rehearsals, but also a little bit about the kind of the parties and the, the whole experience of being at Eurovision as well. We try to take a slightly different slant uh, than just news sites. All right. So thank you, Monty. Thank you very much. Enjoy the island. I've been Ellie Chalkley, the customs officer at the Ile de Besançon Imports desk. And this has been another Eurovision Castaways for ESC Insight. Now bring on the guitars.